You're listening to a podcast from JNNP. Welcome to the JNNP podcast. I'm Harriet Vickers, and this month we're focusing on the dementias. Coming up, the search for an early marker of frontotemporal dementia, one which can be cheaply, quickly and easily screened for. Matteo Pardini tells us how he's been looking into using theory of mind deficits. We know that in frontotemporal dementia there are very big problems in social cognitions. A part of them, they come from this deficit in their ability to understand uh, what other people are feeling. But firstly, the latest on clinically diagnosing these syndromes. In conjunction with the Association of British Neurologists, we convened a roundtable of experts to give us an overview. I'm John Green at the, the Southern General in Glasgow. We have a roundtable discussion with Chris Butler from Oxford. Hello. And Nick Fox from London. Hello. And Hugh Morris from Cardiff. Hello. Chris, do you get a feel for how much diagnosis is being done at neurology level and how much is occurring more at old age psychiatry level across the UK? Well, undoubtedly, the vast majority of uh, diagnosis of dementia occurs out the remit of neurologists, surely because we are many fewer than old age psychiatrists and geriatricians. But we, in general, I think, tend to see a different spectrum of patients through the neurology clinics, uh, and they will be patients who have younger onset dementias, characteristically under the age of uh, 70 or 65, and patients who have atypical presentations of dementia, so um, not necessarily patients who present initially with difficulties remembering what they've done recently, but maybe um, uh, in other cognitive domains, so patients who have difficulty primarily with language or with uh, behaviour and executive function or with perception of the world around them. And certainly, you know, the young and atypical do tend to come to neurology. In terms of the majority going to old age psychiatry, clearly neurology couldn't see all of them, but how, how do you see the interface in terms of the diagnostic accuracy of old age psychiatry services? How, how do you see the optimal management of these services? There's quite a lot of regional variation around the country in this. In Oxford, where I work, we have a very nice relationship with the old age psychiatry and geriatric services. Um, and in fact, all memory referrals from general practitioners get sent to a central triage point where the letters are then triaged to geriatology, uh, uh, old age psychiatry or neurology according to certain criteria in the letters. And so from our point of view, the neurologists are triaged those patients who are uh, under the age of 65, those who present with an atypical form of cognitive complaint, and those in whom the course hasn't necessarily been quite as would be expected in, uh, in neurodegenerative disease, so static lesions or more fluctuating or transient cognitive symptoms. Okay, thank you. And if I could move now to, to Nick, I was wondering if you could just give us an update about your research over the last few years and just in general terms. We're increasingly uh, interested in trying to move treatment trials earlier into disease. So the sad and, and very high-profile failure of 
immunotherapies and other therapies for Alzheimer's disease when patients have been started at a late stage of disease has meant that there is interest in, in moving earlier. So making a diagnosis earlier, treating people earlier, and possibly even running pre-symptomatic studies. So we're quite interested in um, families with a, an Alzheimer mutation or family history of Alzheimer's disease, trying to uh, encourage those people to take part in research uh, with the hope that we can start and uh, treatment trials soon. Right. In terms of picking them up, do you have a feel for what are the most sensitive investigations? Is it primarily MRI or neuropsychology or is it...? We, we know that a lot of the pathologic changes in, in Alzheimer's disease, but in, actually in across the neurogenitive diseases, start uh, many years before. R- remarkable how the window has extended with imaging and uh, CSF markers showing amyloid deposition 10 to 15 years before we expect people to be- become symptomatic. And the, the same holds true for sporadic cases as well as familial, as far as we can, we can tell. And, and, and in the uh, FTD, neurogenitive diseases, there too there are early changes. And this fits with uh, our experience in other diseases such as Huntington's. So I think that opens up a window. In terms of uh, the technology to support our clinical diagnosis, I think a remarkable step forward has been CSF measures. And going back to your question to to Chris, that may change how um, patients around uh, the the UK or around the world uh, are seen, whether by a neurologist or a psychiatrist, because some of the CSF markers, which are relatively quick, relatively cheap, um, but do involve lumbar puncture, and therefore most commonly through what would be seen by a neurologist, they have really pretty good sensitivity and specificity, at least for Alzheimer's disease now. And there was talk of PET being able to directly image amyloid. How's that doing with relation to CSF biomarkers? Well, so uh, absolutely. So amyloid imaging has um, been around now for getting on for 10 years. Um, And now there have been F18 ligands. I mean, you don't need to be right next to a cyclotron to be able to to scan somebody. And just this year, the uh, first... F18 amyloid imaging ligand has been licensed in Europe by the European Medicines Agency. So it's an expensive test. It's not quite clear exactly how it's going to be used or how much take-up, but it has uh, probably going to have more of a role in, in younger patients, and it's going to may well have more of a role in excluding Alzheimer's disease because amyloid positivity is seen in about 25% of people in their late 70s and 80s. Okay, well, thanks very much. And uh, now if I could move on to Hugh. Do you sense a a general reluctance amongst neurology to go looking for genetic causes of the dementias? I think it varies varies a lot. There are a number of uh, NHS tests that are available for dementia. I think that in certain contexts it can be very useful to explore the genetic and familial aspects of the disease. I think because... Uh, a lot of these diseases are age-dependent conditions that come more frequent the older you are. In patients in the younger age group, they have a higher um, chance of having a Mendelian gene. That is a, that is a gene of, of high penetrance um, causing dementia. Um, there are some things that are particularly you know, pointers towards carrying a Mendelian gene mutation causing dementia, either Alzheimer's disease, frontotemporal dementia, or dementia of the Lewy bodies. Um, aged onset... 
family history of other people in the family being affected, and sometimes the clinical syndrome can be helpful at, at pointing towards uh, a possible underlying genetic cause for the disease. I think there are cost constraints in some areas of the NHS, so genetic testing currently can be an ex expensive thing to do when there are multiple genes that uh, might be looked at. I think there's sometimes an uncertainty as to what will happen with the positive genetic test result and how that will be handled with the patient and the family. In fact, in this country, we have quite a well-developed genetic service in terms of genetic counsellors, genetics professionals to support patients and families who are identified as having familial cause of the disease. And of course, as Nick is alluding to, um, work on pre-symptomatic carriers and developing new treatment trials, particularly for Alzheimer's disease, if patients carry gene mutations, uh, means there's a prospect of some of these conditions being treated uh, in terms of trials of new treatments that are going on. So I think there are lots of reasons to try to explore genetic factors in patients with dementia. Right. And in terms of the, the three subtypes of the genetic FTDs, do they have different clinical phenotypes? Yeah, so, there are three, so currently there are three major genes for autosomal dominant front temporal dementia. So that's the tau gene, uh, the progranulin gene, and the chromosome 9 gene, C9-ORF72. Each of them accounts for about 20% of familial frontotemporal dementia, so approximately 60% of familial frontotemporal dementia is currently accounted for by, by known Mendelian genes. Probably the strongest pointer is um, the coexistence of motor neuron disease together with frontotemporal dementia, or a family history of some members of a family being affected by motor neuron disease, some by frontotemporal dementia. And that's quite a strong pointer towards a uh, chromosome 9 gene mutation, a C9-ORF72 gene mutation. In terms of the other clinical syndromes, patients can have Parkinsonism, corticobasal syndrome with both tau and progranulin mutations. Behavioural variant, frontotemporal dementia is the commonest form of frontotemporal dementia, and that's the commonest form in genetic subtypes as well. So beyond that, there is uh, there is kind of a considerable overlap between clinical subtypes. But really, motor neuron disease is probably the most helpful diagnostic clue to look for. And the progressive aphasias who evolve into MND is there anything known about the genetics of those? In general, in terms of the chromosome 9 gene, progressive non-fluent aphasia has been reported in, in families with the chromosome 9 gene. In fact, semantic dementia, although it involves usually motor neuron disease type pathology, so that, that the front temporal dementia has a similar pathology uh, to motor neuron disease with TDP43 positive inclusions, that's much less likely to be a familial or a genetic condition. But, you know, in, in series that have been reported, for example, from the Manchester group, they've reported some chromosome 9 carriers with semantic dementia and some with progressive non-fluent aphasia. But in general terms, semantic dementia is less likely, I think, to be a familial condition than progressive non-fluent aphasia. Would any of the, the experts like to ask each other burning questions? Well, well, I was just wanted to come back to Hugh on this issue of how much testing is done. And I thought it was interesting. There was a paper, I think it was in the JNMP a couple of years ago. So I think Samid was a senior author, which showed there was huge regional variation in terms of tests that were done for familial Alzheimer's disease, for example, with some regions of the yeah. UK having... Yeah. No testing. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm really glad you brought that up, actually, because I do use that slide in some of my talks. So I forget the exact figures, but Simon, in a JNMP paper, showed the um, amount of positive genetic test results coming out of various regions. And Wales and the South West, where I work, 
had a very low rate of positive genetic test results. Uh, but actually, while I've been in Gwent, which has a population of 600,000, the rate of genetic test results has sort of gone up to about tenfold over and above what, what it was before. And I, I don't think that is because there are a lot of genetic dimensions in Gwent. I think it's because I sort of seek out cases and families and tend to do quite a lot of tests on, on patients that I see. So I think it obviously is very much dependent on the willingness of consultants to do tests and to explore genetic factors further. I'm sure there isn't in some regions something in the drinking water that means that people don't get familial dementias. And there were some regions where almost no tests were being done. Yes, I think that's I think that's unlikely that there are environmental uh, environmental factors. And um, I mean, London was a high area of genetic tests. Both patients referred into London, and, and patients already existed in London for for obvious reasons. So. And I wonder if I might ask Nick Fox a, a quick question because one thing that was conspicuously absent was any mention almost of brain imaging. I wonder what your take for the general neurologist working DGH or non-specialist centre would be about what sort of brain imaging uh, is necessary or um, helpful in the differential diagnosis of dementia. So, I mean, I think the NICE guidelines, uh, which say that anybody with a suspected dementia should have structural brain imaging and preferably MRI, uh, is, is a very good starting point. I think somebody who would have difficulty keeping still, or if you're just worried to exclude a mass lesion, a CT is adequate, and, and, and better quality CT give you some regional idea of regional atrophy, but an MRI will give you more information. And sometimes that will be more than enough, a clear evidence of disproportionate hippocampal atrophy pointing you towards Alzheimer's disease, a very focal a lobar atrophy, uh, suggesting um, FTD, for example. Going beyond that, the question then is, what other tests might you do on imaging? I don't know if that was your, you were getting at, at Chris, because certainly for, if you're trying to dis- distinguish dementia with Lewy bodies from uh, Alzheimer's disease, John O'Brien and uh, Ian McKeith and, and, and others have shown that DAT scans can be, dopamine uh, imaging can be helpful in that dif- differential. Uh, sometimes I think if you've got the clear clinical phenotype, uh, I, I'm not sure you need to go that uh, extra stage. Sometimes in, certainly in the US, there's reimbursement for functional imaging, for PET imaging, uh, to try and separate out frontal uh, FTD in particular from Alzheimer's disease. But I think that's used a lot less here. Particularly exploring treatable dementias in younger patients. Obviously, one of the big changes in neurology has been identify, identification of antibody-mediated syndromes. So I just want to ask you how important you think doing antibody testing is in younger patients with cognitive syndromes for, for NMDA receptors or potassium channel antibodies. Yeah, very good question. It is very important. Um, you know, the, the, our understanding of the phenotype of these autoimmune encephalitides uh, is increasing all the time. You know, one of the most characteristic syndromes is is the uh, amnesic um, syndrome associated with seizures and the uh, antibodies to LGI1 or voltage-gated potassium channel complex antibodies. But in fact, we know that those antibodies can also cause uh, a different type of clinical syndrome, various different types of clinical syndrome. So in fact, I would be rather enthusiastic about testing for antibodies against the voltage-gated potassium channel complex and NMDA receptor in young patients, especially where there is any history potentially of epileptic seizures in any 
case where there may be uh, abnormal movements associated with the cognitive impairment. I'd like to just thank all three experts. That's been a, a very informative discussion. Thank you. A paper in this month's JNMP looks at the possibility of using isolated theory of mind deficits as a marker for risk of frontotemporal dementia. And Matteo Pardini, who's a neurologist at the University of Genoa, is lead author on the study. And uh, But he's very handily just around the corner from BMA House at Queen Square at the moment. So he, uh, he joins me in the studio now. So good afternoon, Matteo. Thanks very much for coming in. No problem. Hello, everybody. So first of all, could you tell me exactly what you mean by uh, theory of mind deficits? Mm-hmm. Well, the idea of theory of mind um, started in the autism field. Theory of mind is the uh, ability to uh, understand which are the feelings of other people and of, your, of ourselves. So we know it's a, a frontal function, but it's uh, different from the classical executive function. We know that the uh, um, theory of mind needs both an intact dorsolateral PFC, but also an interfrontal pole and an intermediate prefrontal cortex. So it's a very neat test because it entitles to probe the integrity of the whole frontal lobe. Okay. And could you give us an example or two of how these deficits might show up in someone? How might that affect someone? Let's get the very, very simple theory of mind test. So this is called the Sally and uh, Anne test. It's a cartoon test. There are two children. One is Sally and the other is Anne. Mm. So in the first uh, picture, we saw a box of Smarties. Then uh, there is only Anne in the uh, room. And Anne takes out the Smarties, put inside a a pencil, close it and goes outside. Then uh, Sally enters the room. And now we ask to our uh, patient, do you think that uh, Sally is uh, thinking that there is inside the box? Well, uh, the, the majority of us will say Smarties, of course. While a person with a big deficit in theory of mind could say a pencil. So a very uh, first point of the profound deficits of theory of mind is the uh, inability to perceive the difference of what I think com- compared to what other people think. This is a classic, for example, in uh, schizophrenia or in autism. More subtle theory of mind, like what happens in uh, frontotemporal dementia, are linked to the difficulty to understand uh, how other people are feeling. So, for example, we know that in frontotemporal dementia, there are very big problems in social cognitions. A part of them, they come from this deficit in their ability to understand uh, what other people are feeling. Mm. So that's perhaps the the main point of theory of mind deficits in, in this population. Sure. Okay. Mm-hmm. And and why did you want to look at this in terms of dementia? Well, there are two points of view that we wanted to use the, this test. First, uh, theory of mind is a, a relatively new construct, and there are no many information on how it behaves in dementia. Mm. The second point is that we knew that. Uh, social deficit can be one of the first features of frontotemporal dementia. Our main aim was to see if we were able to find a test that was able to uh, uh, screen their population to find uh, very subtle signs of frontotemporal dementia or, or frontal deficit. And theory of mind 
probes almost the whole uh, frontal lobe or at least the whole prefrontal cortex. So we thought it could be a good candidate. Moreover, uh, the test that we use is a self uh, evaluating test. So it's just a pen and pencil test that uh, you can uh, compile by yourself. Mm. So it's very convenient to use even in, in uh, big uh, groups of people. Okay, sure. Mm-hmm. And and do you think there's a particular need for, for early markers of frontotemporal dementia? Is that something that we're lacking at the moment? Well, yes. If we think about of the literature on neurodegenerative disease in general, we know that uh, if we are going to have a successful therapy, then we are going to be able to have it to use it in uh, the very early phases of the disease. But the big problem is then how we can find people in the very early phase of the disease. Now we have uh, some uh, paraclinical markers. So for example, we have the fluorodesosilucose PET, for example, which is very useful to see if people have some very early brain uh, dysfunction. But uh, we still do not have a marker that, that we could use in the general population, a first level of screening. Right. And uh, we think that uh, only a behavioral test could be used in this way because they are very cheap and so it can be used uh, on, on the very big groups of people. Great, okay. So there's mm-hmm. a need for something quick, easy and cheap yeah. that uh, neurologists can use. Yeah, I mean, we were thinking about this like a, a first level of screening. Mm. Then if your scores are not very good, then you're going to have uh, more detailed uh, tests. So onto your actual study, uh, which was essentially a natural history study. Yes. And you had uh, 4,150 50 to 60-year-olds who you assessed for these deficits and then followed up after mm-hmm. to two years to see if they developed the behavioural variant of frontotemporal <coughs> dementia. Yeah. Could you tell me a bit about how you actually assess these people for uh, the theory of mind deficits? The first question was, uh, does an isolated deficit of theory of mind exist? or not. Mm. So we used a test which is called uh, Reading the Mind in the Eyes test. This test was developed by Professor Baron Cohen here in the UK. He works in the autism field. The test is composed of uh, 36 pictures of actors and actresses. In truth, they are just their eye regions. And they are trying to convey an uh, internal state and emotion. And then there are four words that, that uh, describe this uh, emotion and you have to to choose which uh, of these four words best describe the uh, emotion. The good thing is that even uh, young healthy people are not usually able to do the test all right. This means that this test has not uh, a seeing effect. So we use this test and we combine it with other neuropsychological tests to exclude the presence of uh, other frontal deficits, like, mm. like for example, the, the trail-making test mm. or the fluency tests. Because we know that if someone has an executive deficit, then they could have a deficit of the interior of mind. Mm. But we are interested in people with only a deficit of the theory of mind. Mm. And did, did you find that it was that it tended to be isolated, the theory of mind deficits? Well, we were able to find a subgroup of people, were around 80 people, that had the only a deficit of theory of mind, while all the other cognitive functions were okay. Mm. And okay. so then we decided to uh, follow up more uh, carefully with these people. Okay. And then what did you find after two years when you had those those 80-odd um, people that had the deficits in the, in the first place, then you had a control group as well. Mm-hmm. Well, we found that uh, after two years, people in the th- uh, theory of mind deficit group 
they present with a, a decrease in their prefrontal function as a group. Mm. And then there was a subgroup of them, like 20-something, who, who presented with a clinical diagnosis of uh, frontotemporal dementia with the behavior variant okay. that was associated with uh, an increase of frontal atrophy. Okay. It's interesting to, to notice that all these people had a brain scan at the, at the baseline and did not have any frontal atrophy. It was an exclusion factor right. for our right. study. Okay, and what about the control group? What did you find there? Well, their controls remain stable from, from the neuropsychological point of view. Right, okay, she didn't have any signs of dementia in that group. Yeah, they, they were fine. And, and after the, the first phase, when you had the theory of mind skills mm-hmm. scores, was there a big difference between the control group and the, the low-skilled group? I'm just wondering how sensitive this test might prove to be. Well, uh, in the first phase, it was a kind of a big difference in the theory of mind. Well, the, the problem is that uh, today there is not an accepted cutoff for theory of mind deficits. Okay. So we decided to consider only those with at least uh, two standard de- deviations lower than the mean of the whole group. So it, mm. it, it's a very big difference. Okay. And then uh, after two years, we saw that the difference in general frontal functions was uh, very high. Even after only two years. Yeah. So well, I, I think that one of the key points of the study was that we selected the age group that uh, is uh, more likely to have a diagnosis of frontotemporal de- dementia is right from 55 to 65 years of age. So that was a kind of uh, aimed to this problem. So, so what do you make of the results then? Are you fairly convinced that this is a, a good early risk marker mm-hmm. for frontotemporal dementia? Well, it is known, from, for example, in the Alzheimer field that there is cognitive impairment in which people were functioning well, but they had only a neuropsychological evidence of a cognitive dysfunction. For Alzheimer's the disease is very clear of what is it. Mm. If we move to frontotemporal dementia, it's a little bit less clear. So, f- of course, one could have, for example, an isolated deficit of uh, these executive functions. But then we know that frontotemporal dementia is not only a uh, deficit of the dorsolateral PFC, but also of the medial and the orbital parts of the prefrontal lobe, right, where okay. the uh, theory of mind uh, is located. Okay. This could be an interesting marker for an increased risk of uh, developing in, in the future frontotemporal dementia. Now we are trying to go, go on with with the study looking at the theory of mind deficit in the people with a genetic risk of frontotemporal dementia and see what's going on. What other steps do you foresee before this could be, you know, needs to be proven before it's used in clinical practice? Oh, yes, well, so the first thing is, is to see which is the narrow correlate of this isolated theory of mind. Mm. So one thing that we're trying to do is to combine brain imaging with neuropsychological testing in this population with only a theory of mind deficit to see where is their uh, uh, neural problem. Mm. We think that it is going to be in the frontal pole, like Brodmann area antenna and so on, based on the literature. Still want to, want to show that in our population. And then we want to, to characterize this other uh, at-risk group. Like for example, people with a um, genetic risk of temporal dementia and see what's going on, if they still have a, an isolated uh, theory of mind deficit. Great. Mm-hmm. Well, good luck with your future studies and thanks, thanks very much for coming in. Thank you.
And Dr. Pardini's paper is available in full on jnmp.bmj.com. That's everything for this month. Next month, we'll be getting some clinical advice on neuromyelitis optica and looking into the genetics of cerebral amyloid angiopathy. So come back then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.